Americans, right? One in 15 kids are exposed to domestic violence there. Um, and that's that's a, a, a very scary statistic. 90% of those children that are exposed are eyewitnesses. Welcome to Crime News Insider. This is Jorge Del Portillo. And with me, as always, is Lori Hoff. How are you doing, Lori? Hi, Jorge. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Uh, we are recording this on October 13th, 2022, and it is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And obviously, domestic violence is something that's unfortunately always in the news. Uh, recently, Harris County, Texas reported that 35% of its homicides in its county were related to domestic violence. Atlanta had similar uh, statistics. And obviously, we saw in the news recently several instances of domestic violence. If you just Google it in the news, there's a domestic violence incident recently in McGregor, Texas, where five people were shot dead in a suspected domestic violence rampage. And then in San Bernardino, a suspect was on the run after killing the mother of his child. And he ran and abducted his 15-year-old child, who unfortunately was caught, it seems, in a crossfire when he began shooting at the police. And October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and we wanted to discuss this topic today because it's a crime that really affects all parts of society and sadly can result in some of the most violent crimes that we see and then that the community sees. So with us today is Ben Barlow. Benjamin Barlow began his career as a prosecutor in the San Diego County District Attorney's Office in 2010. He has spent the majority of his career in the Sex Crimes Division and the Family Protection Division. And he is also our association board president. He was first elected to our board in 2014 and then reelected since then and was uh, elected vice president in 2018 and elected as our board president in 2020 and then and just reelected. Is that right? I think yeah, that is right. Did I get that 2014, right? Yeah, man, you've been punishing yourself for a long I'm time really, on the board. It's uh, it's every year has been better than the last. No, it's uh, it's been a good, good experience, great experience and a, and a great group of people to work with. So honored, honored to do it. Well, welcome, Ben. Thank you for joining the podcast. Um, can you tell us a little bit, you know, this is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Can you tell us a little bit about the history and uh, what it means to have this month dedicated to awareness of domestic violence? Yeah, absolutely. And, and first and foremost, a pleasure to be with both of you. Uh, I always enjoy listening to the podcast and, and the and amazing guests that you have. And hopefully I will try not to disappoint uh, <laughs> uh, in following suit. But no, I appreciate the both of you um, talking about this issue and talking about Domestic Violence Awareness Month and domestic violence uh, as a whole, because it is it is such a, a serious and substantial problem, an escalating problem, not only in our county, in San Diego County, but in California. And as you mentioned, I think, Corey, in some of the statistics that you were talking about, Nationwide, we're really seeing uh, a significant increase in domestic violence. And so obviously, whatever awareness that we can bring to this issue uh, for victims and survivors of domestic violence is great. So I appreciate you, you uh, taking on this topic. Um, as far as you know, what it is and, and what's the, the purpose of Domestic Violence Awareness Month or National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, um, really began in the late 80s. I think it was officially declared National Domestic Violence Awareness Month in 1989. And since then, it's really been an opportunity each October for us to acknowledge domestic violence survivors and, and to provide a voice for victims. It's uh, an opportunity to bring the issue to the forefront, like the two of you are doing today and, and the podcast is doing, and really advocate for or to continue to advocate for changes where we can in the law in services that we're able to provide for, for survivors to celebrate survivors who have made it through their cycle or, or made it through domestic violence trauma. 
Uh, more in those, obviously, that, that tragically did not uh, and who have lost their lives to domestic violence. And there's far, far too many of those uh, that are continuing to occur. It's obviously a deep-rooted issue um, that affects our community, affects our family members, it affects our coworkers, it affects everyone. And I think some of the most recent statistics show that, that one in three women and one in four men have experienced uh, some form of physical violence um, by their intimate partner. So if you just mm. think about that in context, you look around your office or your family gathering or your friendship group, um, the likelihood is that someone that you know, whether you know it or not, has been impacted by intimate partner abuse in some capacity, whether it's physical abuse or psychological abuse, mental abuse, financial abuse. It really comes in a multitude of different forms. But the the prevalence of it, um, as we're seeing as, as domestic violence prosecutors more and more and picking juries, when we talk to potential jurors, and we see those hands get raised of people who have been impacted by domestic violence. But I'm just in my career, I've seen that number just explode as far as the people from all ages, you know, young, you know, college kids who've grown up in homes of domestic violence to uh, older individuals who've, who've experienced it their whole life. So it is a, ma- a major, major issue um, and something that obviously Domestic Violence Awareness Month is, is hopefully shining a light on the issue, what we can do about the issue and the services that we can provide to, to survivors of it. One of the things that you well, that our office has done and that you've been involved with, Ben, is a new place, a new location, but a new sort of new way of looking at how we approach domestic violence. And that's um, one safe place. For those of, of our listeners who don't know about this, can you can you explain what it is and what the concept is? Yeah. So uh, obviously, One Safe Place is a new setup, really a, a facility. It's really much so much more than that. It's a 40,000 square foot facility here in North County, San Diego. It's really one of the first, I think, of its kind. And that's that's in large part to the leadership of our district attorney, Summer Stephan, and, and a lot of the stakeholders here in San Diego County um, that have really wanted to provide a sort of one-stop shop for anyone affected or any family members affected by domestic violence, child or elder abuse. So it really deals with domestic violence, uh, child sexual abuse, um, any sexual assault abuse as well, human trafficking, hate crimes, etc. Uh, prior to One Safe Place opening, you know, when 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 I or my colleagues would work or victim advocates who we have in our office would work with domestic violence victims, there was a number of different services or areas where we might say, well, there's this organization in the city of Oceanside. There's this organization in, in San Diego. Um, there's this organization in Carlsbad or Escondido. And, and obviously, San Diego County being as large as it is and made up of so many different cities, as a victim navigating that, you can imagine the difficulty of not really knowing where to go, who to contact. So it it just added the the strain and difficulty on those victims to navigate how to obtain these these critical services that they need. One Safe Place is really a hub, if you will, of all of those groups coming together uh, and providing those services under one roof. So uh, if you're a victim of domestic violence, you can literally show up there. It's open on the weekends. It's open late at night. And those stakeholders, those service providers are all there, regardless of what you may need from therapy to living assistance to um, just assistance with your children. Anything that you can think of, really, those services are there Uh, for them and to help them sort of navigate that process. I think that's so revolutionary because, you know, we're talking about stopping cycles of violence. You can imagine how difficult it is or how many gaps occur in that process of, you know, gosh, I can't, 
make this happen because X, Y, and Z, or all the barriers that are, you know, involved in this or income barriers, et cetera, to, to stopping this cycle of violence. And then you have a place where, you know, all the resources are there. So you don't have to, you know, those gaps aren't as large as they used to be. Yeah, I think that's exactly the gaps. That's a great way to describe it because there, there previously there were a lot of gaps and it was really frustrating even as a prosecutor. And I think for our law enforcement partner, partners to see how those gaps are impacting victims from getting the services that they need. And ultimately, it's 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 not only just getting them out of harm's way, which I think, Lori, as you mentioned, is sort of getting them out of that cycle of violence, but it's it's really providing a place of healing and hope for them that there is life beyond this relationship of abuse out of this environment of violence, that there's, you know, people that want to help that can help. And so to give them sort of hope of looking at a future without that abusive partner without that abusive relationship is is just as integral as getting them immediately into a safe situation so oh, wow i you know it, domestic violence is one of those crimes that it stands apart you know it, there if you get robbed you know at a particular atm okay you're reminded of that trauma that you suffered when you go to the bank or if you're a victim of a dui accident you might have this fear of driving when you're a domestic violence victim you are scared to be in your own home your abuser might be your own intimate partner like you were saying i think what what one of the biggest priorities for us as prosecutors is is immediately getting some space between them and their abuser right getting mm -hmm. them some time away from that abuser so that they can begin to see what they can understand and get out of that cycle because it is it's a cycle that goes round and round and, and the only way really and one of the best ways to to protect victims and to help them break that cycle is to get them away from that abuser, even if it's a short period of time. And so, again, we know that the best way to do that is, is to get services you know, to them as quickly as possible, to let them know what their options are as quickly as possible. And, and even while we've seen sometimes victims might be hesitant at first to want to accept or trust those services, once they engage those service providers, then that that in and of itself begins the process of getting them out of that cycle. And even if it's for, um, you know, that's why protective orders, criminal restraining orders, um, temporary mm -hmm. restraining orders even are so vital at, at the beginning point of this, um, because that space and that distance is critical so that they can go out and seek those services and, and let those service providers do what they're so great at doing, which is, is helping them uh, navigate that trauma. Let's talk about. The, the cases themselves, because that's that's the bread and butter of what what you do, what our prosecutors do is prosecute these cases. So what are the challenges that you face when you're prosecuting domestic violence cases? Um, yeah, I mean, it is the bread and butter of what we do. And and I think more and more as as we're as domestic violence prosecutors, it's becoming more and more about sort of what we can also do and how we can also provide services to the victims outside of just, you know, being in the courtroom. But I think, I mean, personally, for me, and what I try to tell a lot of my colleagues and is, is it's understanding the challenges that are that are just naturally uh, a part of these cases. I think, Jorge, you mentioned, you know, if you're a victim of a crime, it's, it's, it's a traumatic experience, regardless. Right. But it's so much more personal when it's happening in your home with someone who you may have children with. It's someone who you come home from work every day and they, that they're in your space, in your home. Someone, um, someone who you probably love, too. Exactly. I mean, you're, you have feelings for and you care for. That yeah. complicates things in a, in a big, big way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, 
I think a biggest one of the biggest challenges is what we you know we know and the difficulty for a victim to to just number one report this right to number one even get on the phone with the nine one one operator or to go to a law enforcement officer and say this person that I love that I have children with that I've been together with for whether it be six months or twenty five years is abusing like that first step is is so difficult understanding that first step is difficult but then understanding how difficult it's going to be on those victims to go through the criminal justice system to have to testify against their perpetrator or their the person that's responsible for their abuse and then again i think is part is a part of our job as prosecutors is understanding that you know if they have children together if they have a marriage that person's going to be in their life long after we're gone as prosecutors long after you know the district attorney's office is no longer involved in their relationship or a judge or whatever it may be, a a victim advocate. So what can we do to try to set that person up or help that person get out of this cycle of violence to recognize that 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 is not how they need to be, how they should be treated. It's not right that they're being treated that way. They deserve to be, to live a life free of that fear, that intimidation and that violence. And so prosecution is one critical part of that because I think we play a significant role in helping that person break that that cycle of violence that we talked about, but also in many cases get the justice that they deserve when they have been the victims of abuse, uh, especially for victims of domestic violence homicide, for their family members to know that that person is going to be held accountable. So I think as prosecutors, we play a, a really critical role, but it's it's very different than maybe the role that we play as prosecutors in so many other different types of cases where it's just about holding the person accountable and getting justice for the victim. It's it's so much more layered than that because again, we we hopefully have to take a long view of of where that victim is going to be five, ten years, fifteen years down the road, and recognizing that that person we may not be able to keep them out of their lives forever. And so, what can we do to help them right now? Like, and you say they might be re-entering their lives before you go to trial. And I imagine when you're going to trial on in some of these cases, the victims have a change of heart and they recant their story. I'm sure you've seen that one or two times. Yes, yes, we see we see that. And and I think, you know, I think what's great about maybe I think the, the kind of going back to what I was saying, which I think is critically important as prosecutors is the understanding that. Right. Right. Um, and I think as domestic violence prosecutors, there there can be a tendency or there can be a tendency as prosecutors who want to attain justice for our victims and want to hold people accountable to be frustrated by things that are maybe causing us challenges in our trials and our cases because we want to make sure that those people are held accountable under the law. But as domestic violence prosecutors, you have to understand that exact dynamic, Jorge, that right. the cycle of violence, a big part of that, takes into a, a account that this sort of honeymoon phase or aftermath phase of, of the violence where the perpetrator is apologizing and saying they're sorry and, and really you know, getting the, the victim to to believe that this won't ever happen again, even though we know it likely will. So by the time we get to trial over the course of a criminal prosecution, yes, we have to understand and expect that that person may have a real hard time testifying, may want to recant, may want to not participate in the prosecution. But I think as prosecutors, the important part is understanding why, knowing and understanding why that is and, and not um, being frustrated by that, but understanding that that's part of the problem. And that's why you're doing what you're doing is to help that person, hopefully, uh, in that cycle permanently. 
you look at you're looking at things holistically. I think you have to if you're doing DV prosecution. It's you're right. It's not a one track. It is a holistic, um, sometimes a family uh, affair. And um, one of the things that correct me if I'm wrong, we saw an increase in during COVID was homicides, particularly DV homicides. And and we all know that, you know, things like domestic violence occur behind closed doors anyway. So when you have closed doors for a long period of time under the stress of COVID, under the stress of losing jobs, under the stress of, you know, being together 100% of the time, you know, we just we just saw a spike in it. And one of the things that you're doing and, and our prosecutors are doing is going back and looking at red flags to say, how can we prevent this, you know, the, the worst of the worst, which is the loss of a human life, a DV crime that ends up with a person dead. Um, we can't take that back. We can't go back and, you know, try to fix it. But what do we do way before that happens? And what are you finding? Yeah, and I think what you're describing, Lori, is in that that the tension building phase of that cycle of violence, um, which then leads to sort of an acute explosion of violence, um, which can be homicide or, or can be, you know, very violent and, and, and tends to be. So every domestic violence homicide, we, in essence, do a, a debrief or sort of a, you know, as, as stakeholders from law enforcement to all different sort of, you know, even child welfare services sometimes of where could we have seen this coming? How can we have stopped this ahead of time, right? Oftentimes, we're going to see a tension building or a ramp up of that sort of escalating conduct. But that that escalation, that violence, which ultimately could peak at a, at a very violent event, even a homicide, is what we want to try to get in front of the best we can. So the red flags are, you know, any violence that comes in, any, any even misdemeanor level domestic violence, which may not seem on just, you know, as it is, the conduct may not seem so serious to rise to a felony level or to rise to an issue where we feel like, well, this person could be subjected to to violence um, someday, it's important to intervene at that early age, or at that early stage. And so that's one of the goals of the Domestic Violence Recovery Program, which is a 52-week class that is mandated by for all first-time uh, domestic violence offenders. The point of that early intervention with the Domestic Violence Recovery Program is that it it's, it's sort of our first opportunity to make sure that this person gets off of that track, the person, the perpetrator, the defendant gets off of that track of, of learning how to deal with that escalating tension in a way that's nonviolent. So we don't see them down the road on a felony case, a, a more subjective, more serious violence. I, I wanted to talk about sort of another aspect of it. We talked about domestic violence uh, month. Uh, we're recognizing survivors and victims. And I'm just wondering if we we don't put enough thought or effort into, I mean, maybe it's the prosecutor in me, but, you know, the, our abusers are, you know, we have, we have a lot of public information out there for victims and is so much of it is on victims to do something. And if they don't, then it's sort of their fault, right? If they don't take it upon themselves, if they don't do this, if they don't do that, then, then we sort of, as a society are like, well, you should have. You know, don't we look at it and say, gosh, you know, easy for me as a woman to say, well, I would leave, you know, and we have to sort of talk to jurors about that feeling of, you know, that's that may be what you think you would do, but that's not what often happens. And that's not the cycle. But, man, we are. Abuse is learned. Abuse is learned. So we have abusers who have learned 
either because they've seen it in their own families or they've seen it growing up or that's what they were exposed to. And now they're doing it to their own families, to their own wives and children, assuming it's men. Um, we know that that's not always the case, but, but man, you know, where's, where are we going wrong in our society that, that we, we, that it's all under these victims to make the right choice, you know? Am I, am I saying something totally inappropriate? No, No. (laughs) this, it makes sense. Like, why isn't the, why aren't we intervening on these abusers and educating them before they become an abuser or like, right. Just have some sort of services and recognizing before they become an abuser and prevent that. Yeah. I think those are great. That's a very real point, right? Lori, that's a very organic sort of belief and feeling that a lot of people have about, you know, we, and as you mentioned, we do have to spend time educating our jurors sometimes on cases of domestic violence, you know, common question, how would you expect a, a victim of domestic violence to respond? How would you expect them to act? Would oh. you expect them to leave uh, immediately? Um, would you expect them to immediately pick up the phone and call police and report that? Can you understand why they don't do that? Can you understand why they might be afraid to do that? Let's talk about all the reasons why someone can't just simply do that, right? They have, they share children together. They're financially tied to that person. I think about all the all the situations and dynamics where um, there is a, a situation where that person, and that's why places like One Safe Place and are so critical because they don't believe they have anywhere else to turn. Right. You know, they may have no family in this in their area. They may have no friends that they could turn to. The only person that they have that they rely upon every single day for financial support for every type of support is their abuser. So. How easy is it for us to, to say, well, you could just report that and, and put them into the criminal justice system. Right. So, but you're right. At the end of the day, you know, how can we intervene with the defendants or the perpetrators of this earlier on so that, that they too can understand the absolute damage and carnage that this causes generations, right? One in 15 kids are exposed to domestic violence. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and that's, that's a, a, a very scary statistic. 90% of those children that are exposed are eyewitnesses. Um, and I can tell you that, you know, the number of cases that come across my desk where children are are present, are in the same room, are witnessing it. And how do you measure the impact that's going to have on their life? Completely, right? how do you, completely how agree. Do you measure, right. How do you measure what that child is going to see as a normal relationship? Completely right? agree. They grow up. So, I was, I was, because every, you know, all the information comes from Facebook nowadays, of course, but I saw on Facebook, there are these sticky posts from a trauma counselor. And it was like what little kids were saying in like one of the stickies from a six-year-old kid said, if I ran away, my parents wouldn't even know they're too busy fighting to say goodnight anymore. Jeez. A seven-year-old said, I cry myself to sleep at night. I feel so alone. My mom and dad fight all night long. It's like, we have no idea the trauma that these poor kids are taking with them. That's their, but the backpack is so heavy with trauma that we have no idea. And then we wonder why we have abuse later on as adults. It's obvious. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's really, it's traumatic on, on a number of levels. And when you see as a prosecutor and you read those reports and you see, you know, the couple's children were there in the house, in the room. It's just heartbreaking because, you know, you know, you don't know, right? You know, you don't know what that's going to mean for that child down the road and, and how they're going to to learn from that. And and the likelihood that 
you know, um, that there, there has to be some intervention and someone, maybe a parent's being prosecuted for abusing the other parent and, and the dynamics that that's going to cause in the home. And so it's just, yeah, it's, it's an absolute tragedy. And, and one, again, I think that, you know, domestic violence, there's no certain area of the county that this impacts more than others, or there's no, you know, one type of, you know, it's, it's like, like property crimes or car burglaries where it's like, well, that area has a high rate of, of, of car burglaries. And so maybe you can avoid, you know, that situation or, or try to stay away from those situations. If you know, it might result in property crimes or things like that, but domestic violence covers all spans of, of on all walks of life, right? Children all across the County, regardless of where they live and how they live and what type of homes they are being raised in and, and any of that are being subjected to this trauma. Uh, and I think that's a great description for is a, it's a backpack of trauma that, you know, we just will never really understand. I can tell you that, you know, when you see an 18 to 19 year old kid in your jury pool and they hear the charges of, of domestic, the seriousness of domestic violence, even in a homicide or attempted murder or um, great bodily injuries been caused or, or something substantial. You can see it on their faces. You can hear it in their voice when they talk about growing up in a house of domestic violence um, and how they can't sit on that jury because they they can't get that out of they 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 can't be fair and impartial because they grew up in a household of that. Um, you know, one safe place does forensic interviews for our child victims or people that may have children who may have witnessed crimes again. So it's, it's just another great resource and service that we can provide there versus having to having a parent shuttle their kids from one place to another all over the County. They can really go to one place, get the counseling they need, have their child do a forensic examination, talk about safety planning, get a restraining order, start that process. It's all there in one place. And again, you know, that's, that's step one is just making sure those, those services are, are um, accessible. Ben, you're, you're a local hero. No, the yeah. work, no, I'm serious. The work, the work that you do and, and, um, the work that our DV unit does, it's one of the largest units in, in the San Diego DA's office. And it's because unfortunately we have just a continued increase of domestic violence cases that have to be prosecuted and have to be dealt with. And, and those wraparound services require a tremendous amount of work and partnership with our community. So thank you so much for all the work that you do in prosecuting these cases. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I mean, I think, you know, our office is is full of of people who, you know, give so much to any prosecutor that's that's prosecuting any crime in, in, in our office or up and down the state or, you know, they, they do so because they, I, I like to believe that they care. It matters to them. They want to make a difference in their community. This is an area that's obviously been very has been the focus of my career is domestic violence prosecution because it matters a lot to me. I think it means a lot to me to to know and to see how we as prosecutors can make a difference. And also when you see just again, the, the, the magnitude of impact on the community that this has, I'd like to say that during my time in this office, I've, we've seen the number of, of domestic violence cases decrease, but the reality is, is that not only here in San Diego, but in every County and everywhere uh, it's increasing. Domestic violence is, is increasing um, in volume and in seriousness in the people exposed to it. So um, I think, you know, hopefully, and I know that my colleagues, all of us are, are really dedicated to doing what we can to to fight domestic violence and the spread of domestic violence and, and hopefully making a, making a difference. And, and there'll be not, there'll need to be a lot more focus on this in the future from, from prosecutorial offices and, and making sure that we're, we're taking this seriously because uh, the stakes are so, so high. Well, thank you for your dedication 
to this. I mean, your whole career, you're known in the office as domestic violence prosecutor. You're a team leader up here in the Family Protection Division. So we appreciate your dedication to the public. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. But uh, as you know, we always shift gears necessary uh, and end on a light note. And we play a little game called Crime or Fiction. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. So for listeners out there, this game is called Crime or Fiction. And each episode, we look at the laws on the books where two are real, one is fake. And I quiz my panel to see if they can guess which one is the fake. The theme, as you might have guessed, is domestic violence, but this is the history of domestic violence laws. Are you both ready? No. Lori? I was no? reminded by somebody who actually listens to our podcast that I have, my track record is not very good as of late. I was like, oh, thanks. Appreciate <laughs> That's it. That's true. You it's did true. Last, the last episode, but. <laughs> That's uh, going to make it even worse if I, if I, if I don't get straight, Lori, and you beat me, that'll make you even, you're just. Yes, that will be, that would just look bad on you, Ben. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. No so pressure. here we go. Here we go. A, in 1899, California was the first state to criminalize domestic violence. B, in 1871, the Alabama Supreme Court was the first in the nation to rescind the legal right of men to beat their wives. And C, in 1911, the first family court in the nation was established in Buffalo, New York. Two are real, one is fake, and see if you could guess which one is the fake. Ben, since you are our resident expert, I'll ask you to go first. Uh, not really sure what was going on in the late 1800s. Um, I should be more up on that and, and our advancements of, of domestic violence law in the country. Um, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to have to go with, with B is the, although I think that's a, it's a red herring, but I think B is the, is the fake one. Be the uh, 1871 Alabama Supreme Court first in the nation to rescind the legal right of men to beat their wives. It was a tough call, but I'm going to go with I'm going to okay. go with um, I, I vote. Yeah, I'm going to go with the Alabama Supreme Court uh, rescinding the legal right uh, to to commit domestic violence was is the fake one. OK, do you think it happened before or after that? <laughs> it's good. Well, uh, after. That's okay. a trick question. That's a yeah. trick question, Jorge. Yeah. Lori, how about you? That's what our kids say. You're, you're, don't, don't lawyer at your, don't give us your lawyer questions, <laughs> Dad. Um, I, I, well, obviously, I agree with Ben, and you should, you I thought you were going to start with me, but if had you started with me, I also would have said B really? because I, um, I just don't believe Alabama would be the first in the nation to do that. <laughs> All right. So both of you agree B. So let's let's start with let's go backwards. Let's go with C. In 1911, the first family court in the nation was established in Buffalo, New York. You both think this is real and this one is real. I looked it up. I was trying to find actually I found it in some on the California court website, they had some statistics there. I couldn't independently verify it, but I trust our California court website for, for that fact. And I saw it on multiple trainings. So good on you, uh, Buffalo, New York, to establish that early in 1911. Let's go to B. In 1871, the Alabama Supreme Court was the first in the nation to rescind the legal right of men to beat their wives. You both think this one is a fake and this one is real. Oh, Full, Fulgham. Versus the state, 1871, the Supreme Court ruled the wife is not to be considered as a husband's slave and the privilege, ancient though it be, 
to beat her with a stick, to pull her hair, choke her, spit in her face, and kick her about the floor, or to inflict upon her like indignities is not now acknowledged by our law. So they were the first in the state. That's Pretty amazing. surprising, right? For it's amazing that we had to say that in the first place. The yes. <laughs> I, I, I can't believe that that is written out, that that was the norm wow. to, to do that. Um, but uh, fortunately, we've come a long, a long way here. Uh, so that means a 1899 California was the first state to criminalize domestic violence. That is the fake. It was actually Maryland in 1882. They passed a law that says anyone that who shall brutally assault or beat his wife shall be deemed guilty of a misdemeanor. Ben, how could you not know that? No, that's what I said. I, I, I need to, I need to hone up on my 18, late 1800s law. (laughs) That's the takeaway from this podcast today. I I, immediately after I end this podcast, I'm going to start digging into uh, late 1800s changes in the law. (laughs) And do you know what the sentence was for Maryland in the 1800s for domestic violence? I'll tell you. (laughs) It was was to be whipped, not exceeding 40 lashes or in prison for a year for a misdemeanor. So we've also come a long way uh, with with that. So thank you both. I'm sorry, uh, Lori, your streak. uh, It's ended. It's just officially gone. It's okay. That's right. I trusted you, Ben. That was the last. That was the last time. (laughs) I, our, our answers were tied together. So we, neither one of us lose. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no there you go. There's no winner. <laughs> well, th- thank you both again. Thank you, Ben, for joining the podcast again. Th- October is domestic violence awareness month every year. So we wanted to shed light on this uh, very important issue. If you know someone or you're experiencing domestic violence, there's our, there's a variety of um, resources out there. I'll put some in the, in the show notes. There's a 1-800- 799-7233 is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. If you are in San Diego, obviously stop by at One Safe Place. It's in North County for those services that Ben mentioned. Yeah, and there's also the Family Justice Center downtown for anyone that's listening um, as well, which has it's a similar sort of framework with a lot of different services available. So thank you both for, again, bringing uh, attention to this important, important issue. And just uh, I think that uh, the takeaway, if it, people can... Um, begin to appreciate how how many people are impacted by this and how difficult of a of an issue this is for the victims the, the surviving they're going through this and and how critical it is to to help them get in touch with someone that can get them some service. So if you know or like just as you said, Ori, if you you know someone or you have uh, someone you believe that's you know going through this experience or is in that cycle of violence or being a victim of domestic violence, please please try to. Do what you can to, to get them some help because that early intervention is so critical to preventing some some serious you know violence down the road or the, the absolute worst case, which is domestic violence homicide, which which is what we're all aiming to hopefully hopefully eradicate someday. Thank you so much, Ben. Appreciate that, Lori. Thank you as well as always. Thanks, Jorge. And thank you to everyone out there listening. Uh, you could find us on our Facebook page. Is we're San Diego DDAs. Uh, you can find us on Twitter as well. Uh, we have a dedicated podcast Twitter. It's at Crime News Insider. And you can email us at crimenewsinsider at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, just please leave a rating on Apple or Spotify. Spotify now has a rating. And go ahead and give us a four or five stars. Don't smash the like button. Just softly press the like button. Uh, we don't want to get sued for damage to your phone there. But uh, until next time, this is the Crime News Insider Podcast. 
expressed on this podcast are solely of the speakers and do not reflect the views of the Deputy DA Association nor the District Attorney. Questions and comments can be sent to crimenewsinsider at gmail.com. Please leave a rating and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this show. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at San Diego DDAs. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Well, I'll do-